So good to be here. What a joy it is that um, as we continue to journey through what it looks like and what it means to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, uh, that God has given us uh, all that was available to those who were on the planet with him when he was here so that they could follow him. He's given us his personhood, his being, his presence by his spirit. His spirit is with us, uh, even so far as being with our spirit dwelling within us, right? In this temple that is my body and our collective bodies, he's given us his body uh, to be with, and you are around his body right now. Uh, All those who are uh, believers in Jesus are part of his body. And, And what a joy it is to gather up, as the author of Hebrews would say, regularly, not neglecting to do that, so that we can remind one another and be reminded by one another through experiencing Jesus through his body of his faithfulness. In a world that is in regularity through the circumstances and relational dynamics and, 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 and resource challenges, trying to convince us that God is absent and unfaithful. And to come back here and to be reminded by his body through his spirit, his personhood, uh, of his faithfulness, it is a good and right and beautiful thing. And, and then he's given us his word uh, by which his spirit and his body uh, navigates and speaks and teaches, his spirit teaching us uh, through his word and through each other. And, and what, a, what an incredible thing this, this that we call his word is. You know, I, th- I think so often as we encounter his word because it is instructive uh, in its nature, it is bringing instruction. And because we use words like we should study his word, study the Bible, which we should, I think often we move our mindset to experience this beautiful thing as a textbook with instructions in it that we are to dig into and try and determine the details on so we can get right the things God tells us to get right. That's how we experience his word more often than not. And in fact, uh, what we truly experience when we enter his word rightly and understand it rightly is not a textbook full of instructions, but a unfolding conversation that happens to have by nature teaching and instruction as part of it. We watch the Old Testament unfold and it is a sequence of stories like you would experience if you were conversing with someone. And we enter the New Testament and it is a sequence of stories and then a set of letters. And so it is this constant relational dynamic taking place between people within the scriptures and from God to us. I was reminded when I was in Brazil just recently uh, teaching through John 15 and 16, which is where Jesus talks about the abiding life, that he is the vine and we are the branches, and then that he will send his spirit to teach us that as we learn to become disciples of Jesus in our context without him being on this planet, that, that one of the things we get to do in that is to come and listen to him teach through this. And I think of it as uh, the fireplace that was likely 
uh, the end of each day, if you were walking around with Jesus on the planet, perhaps each morning before you headed out into whatever you're gonna go do, uh, perhaps in the middle of a day uh, when your uh, Jesus gathers you and we sit down, he says, sit down for a second, let, let, let's talk. And then he has this conversation. And by nature, a conversation is something you listen to and then it sparks thought and then you ask questions and dig. And I, I, I wish so often that our experience of scripture would move much more to a space of study insofar as I am digging to understand the conversation better. If I'm digging for context or I'm digging the original languages or I'm digging for the historical setting, it is because I want to get a better handle on what I am hearing in this conversation. Does that all make sense? You may be saying that's a lot of talking and I, we're in First Timothy. Yeah, but, but the reason I'm doing this is because uh, in some regularity, you bump into a passage of scripture that I find so beautifully demonstrates the unfolding conversation that is happening, but because it is instructive, if we're not careful, our propensity will be to take that passage, pull it from the conversation, and then go through, ah, look, he's saying this and this and this. We need to do that and that. There are rules here. Though instruction does instruct us and we would be wise to take that instruction and pay attention to it, when it is in the unfolding conversation, the instruction becomes much more clear as to its reasoning in our relational dynamic with each other and with God. And the passage we're about to step into, you'll watch literally as in the writing of this letter, Paul's conversation unfolds in his head. If you read it like it is, like a conversation, it makes perfect sense. You're like, yep, there you launch and then you, you launch. And, and what I love about the Spirit of God, because this is a conversation he's having with us, is that he uses the way he designed us, our brains, Paul's brain, to write a letter that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but not written as a textbook, just Paul's thoughts unfolding, and then the Spirit of God bringing about his beautiful clarity as he inspires Paul to write. So are you guys ready to jump into where we go next and watch the conversation unfold? Now, before we go to the actual passage, whenever you step into a conversation midway, you want to be clear that you know what conversation you're stepping into, right? Because it gets super weird if you step in a conversation midway, you hear one sentence and you're like, oh, I have a thought on that. And then they're like, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> have you ever been there? Like, Halfway conversations, ask the question, what are you all talking about? Because then it gives you some context. And the conversation we're in, in 1 Timothy, excuse me one sec, is a conversation that Paul is having with Timothy to prepare him to have a conversation with the church in Ephesus to redirect them when they've kind of lost their way. And part of the losing of their way came about when leaders in the church moved from a mindset of serving the church and utilizing what God has given them for the sake of the church and became self-indulgent and started seeing what they can extract from the church by lording over the church. And so false teaching emerged so that they could exert their power and extract what they want. That's happening in the leadership a lack of godliness and 
a a growth of self-indulgence. That's the broad conversation that's happening here. And the most recent part of that conversation is where Paul said to Timothy, if you are willing to go and confront the leaders of this church with what they are doing, this is what a good servant does. I know what I'm asking you to do, Paul, is uncomfortable and difficult and hard. They're older than you. They have more history than you. They're a powerful church with powerful leaders. And you're going to roll in there and you've got to bring some redirection, some correction. But if you do it, man, that is what a good servant of Jesus does because you are grounded and sound in your doctrine. And that is what love is. And the aim of our charge, our correction, our redirection is love. So this will be a loving thing. And then if you remember from last week, uh, Paul says, when you go to these leaders and they are older than you, have more history than you, have more experience than you, they're going to tell you, who are you to come tell us wiser, older folks? Uh, what is right and good. You're just young. You don't know. And Paul says, don't let them look down on you just because you're young. Don't let age be the primary determiner on whether you are wise or whether you have sound doctrine. Are people that are older wiser than people that are younger? Sometimes, well done. I just got a sudden sometimes from like several people. Sometimes, sometimes. If both humans theoretically walked in wisdom and collected wisdom and one's lived for 80 years and one's lived for 20, who has the most wisdom? The 80-year-old. But what if the 80-year-old has not been collecting wisdom and just been foolish for 80 years? Then they're a greater fool than a 20-year-old fool. And so it does not necessitate someone having wisdom just because they're older. And so Paul says, Timothy, you have collected wisdom. You have developed sound doctrine. You have studied well. You have been empowered by older folk. The elders have laid hands on you and prayed. Stand in all of that. You are bringing wisdom to some older people that in this context are behaving foolishly because they are self-indulgent. So step in and do not be afraid and do not let them use your youth against them. You're with me. What might you do if you're having a conversation with someone who's younger or someone who you are discipling and you've just told them something like, let your youth stand forward. Don't be afraid of it. Don't let them look down on you. What might someone like that then accidentally do when they approach people that are older? You don't get to tell me what to do. Paul said, just because I'm young, I, uh, you don't know more than me because you're older. And so my, I'm coming in. And you know that, that thing when we're given instruction and we're fanned into flame a bit? And we're like, don't be afraid of the older folk. They don't know as much as you. Oh, I knew it. Uh, yeah. And the youth runabout, we throw this verse around to our 17-year-olds all the time, right? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. There's truth to that. But Paul also knows that taken too far 
ends up into a world of disrespect, a world of not paying attention to where there is wisdom uh, in other spaces. And so in a natural conversation, what might happen next? Watch what Paul does. Grab your Bibles now. We're in the conversation, a conversation about confronting some uh, self-indulgent leaders in a church that has become in of itself self-indulgent. Timothy's gonna do it and don't let his youth hold him back. And then look what Paul writes. Conversation continues. Chapter five, verse one. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Don't you love the way the conversation's unfolding? Timothy, don't let them look down on you because you're young. Thanks, Paul. Now that I've said that, and it is true, when you approach someone who is older and has some life under their belt and some history, even if you are approaching them to bring some correction or redirection, what attitude should you have when you approach them? Uh, Attitude of humility, an attitude of respect, an attitude maybe like you would toward your father. Now in a culture where that relational dynamic was very much a dynamic of respect, little different than our culture sometimes. And I recognize when we say things like, treat the older men like your dad, there's baggage in the room, right? (laughs) What do you mean? Whenever God uses illustrations like this, he is using the illustration in the most ideal version of the intended illustration. You with me? God did not create fathers and fatherhood to be terrible and dysfunctional. Is it sometimes terrible and dysfunctional? Yes, but what he's saying is, in a world where the right kind of dynamic between a father and a child would be, when you're dealing with someone who's an older man and you, Timothy, young as you are, are coming to rebuke them, don't just rebuke them, encourage them. Come in with an attitude that says, I have some things I wanna share. Can we talk this through? He's saying, don't just roll in there like, Paul said, I don't have to care about how old I am because I know more than you anyway, you self-indulgent false teacher, you. (laughs) I'm gonna come in, treat him like you would dad. Walk him with some respect. Now, Now watch, watch. The reason Paul's saying that is because in this conversation, he just said the thing about Timothy being young. But what happens in a conversation when we're having it? One thought sparks another thought, and then you're like, speaking of that, let's go watch the thought unfold. I love this. This is a letter about how the church should behave. The Spirit of God is moving and shifting words, but Paul's mind is at play. Do not rebuke the older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Speaking of that, younger men as brothers. Older woman is mothers. Younger woman is sisters in all purity. Do you see what Paul just did? This isn't about the younger men and the younger woman and the older woman. It's about the false teachers, but he said it. And now he's like, he he actually starts, he says, as a church, how should we behave with each other? Like family, like family. Because you know what this is? It's family. How do you know? Have you read the New Testament? We are people that belong to each other. We are brothers and sisters. Uh, we are parents and children in the, in the discipleship relationship. This is the language used throughout scripture. Uh, we are his body and we are family. And so Paul says, we are family. We know that. So when we deal with each other, how should we treat each other? Like family. 
like family. So now do you see how the, how the thought, the conversation is expanding? It's gone from youth to treat the older people with respect when you're confronting them to actually behave like family with everyone. And now as he said that, let's be a family and let's think of each other like family where in, an, uh, in, a, in a typical and ideal family, you're not in the family to get what you want. You're in the family to be a participant in adding to the family. Yes, families fight. Of course they do. Mine does. Yours does. Yes, we're selfish. Of course we are. Yes, when it comes down to it, we're vying for position in our home. But take a bunch of people and pit them against your family and what happens? Boom. You come for me. You come. Oh, rather, my bad. You come for them. You come for me, right? There's something about the nature of family that says when it comes down to it, it's, it's not about me and what I can get from this place. It's about me being a part of something that protects this place. And so in my own way, I serve, I protect. And Paul says, that's what the church should feel like. Now, watch what happens next. This is what I'm talking about when I say conversation. This next part pulled out by itself out of a textbook becomes an important instructive section on how we deal with a particular issue in the church. That is not the primary intent of what Paul just does, though certainly it gives us instruction on how to deal with this. But watch what happens next. He says, in all purity, verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. So just, just walk with me here for a second. What a weird sentence, right? Like, hey, treat the older men with respect. Actually, behave like family. You got it? All right, now on to instruction. Uh, only care for the widows that are truly widows. Like, you just like, what just happened? Like, we were talking about family. Oh, no, 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 no. See, what Paul's doing is he's actually taking a reality in the time in which he's talking about that was a dramatic part of how family functioned because of the nature of this time in history. And he's, he's almost illustrating with a dynamic reality of where family gets complicated on how to deal with family. He's gonna give us instruction on widows right now, but it's not about widows, it's about family. And widows become a part of how you deal with the complicated dynamics of family. But he's gonna do it not only in individual families as they deal with widows, but also in the church as a family. And in doing that, he's gonna have a conversation. So, and it's this, it's that, and we do this, and this is why we do that. And the point is actually to illustrate that we're supposed to behave like family. So he starts out this way. Take the widows, for example. Uh, we, we really need to care for true widows. Now, by the way, widows, just because it's a, it's, a, it's a reality that's very different in our time than in his time. Because you might say, well, widows is always an issue. Like in our church, we, we have some people that are widows. But think about this. Do you know what the life expectancy is in 2022 currently? I looked it up, so 79.6. 79.6. You are generally... Uh, uh, in the average human reality, in our cultural context, going to live to 79.6. So those of you that are 79.8, I mean, time to celebrate. Those of you that are, just kidding, just kidding. The point is it's an average, right? So 79.6 is generally what, what happens. Do you know what the life expectancy was of a person in the Roman Empire in AD 50 when these letters were being written? 
Mm, good guess, 47. Try again. 22 to 31. 22 if you include um, infant mortality and closer to 31 if you don't. So between war and disease and, and, and things that went on and the lack of technology and everything else, you lived on average, if you were a person in AD 50 in Rome, you lived on average to 22 to 31. Were there older people? Yes, of course. But if you did the average, the majority of society experienced their losses in that season of 21 to 50. When you got to 60, if you lived to 60, everybody else in your life was probably dead. I'm just saying that as a, so you know when you talk to someone that's 103 in our culture? Have you ever done that? I've, I've talked to several people that, are, that, have, that have passed the 100 mark, right? Or the late 90s. And one of the things you hear from them is the tiredness of soul because they've lost everyone. Right, their their children. They've buried their children. They've buried their spouse. They've buried their friends, and they're just like, I just want to like this. No, like I don't want to be alone. And everyone I've known is gone because I'm 103, and and I, and and the average people don't live that long. So in this culture, at 60, you were that. So when Paul is talking about widows in this church, he's talking about. A massive amount of people in the church having a widow in your family or a widow in your church was more normal than not normal. Isn't that crazy? And how old were the widows usually when they showed up? In their 20s. In their 20s, they'd gotten married at 13 or 14 or 15, and they lost their spouse in their 20s. And you say, 13 or 14 or 15, that's terrible. It's not when you're living to 31. I'm, I'm, not, I'm saying that, was, that, that life looked different then. So when Paul says, hey, speaking of family, we're going to talk about an issue that's part of the family, right? Part of the church family, part of the individual family, and I'm going to use this reality to show you what I mean by treating each other like family. And so much is about to come out of this that has nothing to do with widows and everything to do with widows simultaneously. Take a look. Okay, so you, you get the context now, right? We're talking about a lot of widows here uh, of different ages, mostly younger. Honor the widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children, or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. So look what Paul first does. He says, look, we've established this thing in the church that we should care for the vulnerable and care for the widows, right? That's already been established by this time in history. So the church is assuming it is supposed to take on the care of the widows and to take those widows and employ them. I don't mean like as staff. In other words, bring them into the church and have them begin to function within the life of the church. Them being family to the church, the church being family to them. So the assumption would be Anybody who becomes a widow is immediately put into the category of you're a widow now, you're part of the church, and we're going to take care of you and you're going to be part of us. And remember, just a quick side note, 
what was one of the issues that the false teachers had brought to the table that Paul was standing against? They said they forbid marriage. So if you're a widow who's maybe say 19, you had a husband, you, the husband dies, now you are forbidden to get married. So now you're gonna be a widow for a long time. You're gonna come in the church and functionally join the church as a widow. And Paul says, okay, listen, start here. If there is a widow and that widow has children and grandchildren still, that means she's not one of those people that's lost everyone. She's got kids and she's got grandkids. Where should she go deploy her godliness first? In the home. Like, don't, don't deploy her to be a godly woman in the church as the church being her primary family. Have her go and deploy her wisdom and godliness in her home with her children and her grandchildren. Then have them all come to church together. So first of all, if you're a widow in this time, go home and, and deploy there. And what about the young widows? What about the young ones? Send them back to their parents. If they have parents and a girl got married, say at 18 and loses her husband at 20, send her home to her parents. That's where she was before. And what are parents in this culture supposed to do? She serves the home, they serve her until they find a suitor for her. And then they walk through the whole marriage thing and off she goes. Paul will get to that in a second. He's basically like reset where you started in the home. Don't, don't deploy her into the church. Now, now watch why he's doing this. This is where it gets so awesome. Look at this. <clears throat> she who is truly, this is verse five. She who is truly a, uh, she who is truly a widow left all alone. So how does, how does Paul define a true widow? So this is a person who's lost their spouse. They are probably in their 50s or 60s, 70s. They're one of those rare people that have lived longer than the general society. They've lost their children because what's the average age? 22 to 31. So by the time you're 60, you've got 20 year old kids and maybe they went to war and died. And you didn't have grandkids because they died young or the grandkids, the infant mortality rate was massive. So for those widows, who are actually left alone, they should be immediately deployed into the family that is the church. They becoming a godly presence in that family and that family becoming family for them. Watch, watch, he unfolds it this way. He says, um, she was truly a widow, left all alone, and has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This is fascinating because Paul is setting something up here that doesn't have to do with widows, but that has to do with us as the people of God. And widows is the category he's using right now because he's already used it in all sorts of other categories. What kind of leaders does he want in the church? Servant leaders, godly leaders, uh, uh, leaders that, that are about the church and not about themselves, about Jesus and not about themselves. They are not self-indulgent. Remember, he's already dealt with all the qualifications we should look for in leaders in the church so that they don't become fools and behave like fools, becoming self-indulgent. Now look what he's doing with widows. 
He's, he's starting to categorize it for all of us. What kind of people do you want in the church deployed in serving the church? Godly people. So if there's a widow and she's lost everyone and she is godly, absolutely get her involved in the church to function as a grandmother, mother to the church and function as her family. If she's not godly, she's self-indulgent, she's in it for herself, she's taking from the church, don't deploy her yet. And encourage her, rebuke her, correct her like we would each other, but don't deploy her. We're not just saying, if there's a widow, take care of them. In fact, let me rephrase. We're not just saying, if there's anyone, take care of anyone. We're saying in this category, of people that are gonna serve the church and the church is gonna serve, what kind of people do you want us all to be? Godly people. And if we're not godly, then first do the hard work of correcting that. If they are godly and they have kids and, and grandchildren, where's the best place for them to go be godly? At home, at home. And one of my favorite quotes of all time and certainly my favorite quote of Mother Teresa's, uh, is this. Mother Teresa once said, if you want to change the world, go home. If you want to change the world, go home. Just a side note real quick for those of you listening. We are a strange culture, aren't we? I mean, lots of strange cultures in the past. We're not more strange than other cultures. We just have our own crazy strange. And one of the strangest things that we've done that the enemy has managed to do is that we have devalued the home. We have said the home is the burden you carry and your workplace, your career, your social networks, your status, your bank accounts. That's what makes you a man or a woman. That's what makes you successful, valuable. Uh, our society took it all the way and said, what makes you most valuable is being a consumer. And what makes you second most valuable is being a producer. And so we went after consuming and producing and the home devalued. And now those of us that are home as our vocation, we feel like we're wasting our life. And those of us that have vocations outside the home, we're hardly ever home. Did I just say all that out loud? Sure did. Because we have devalued the home. And what Paul says here is the place that most needs godly people to be deployed is the home. If a widow is godly and she has children, grandchildren, deploy her there. If she has parents, deploy her there because they will keep discipling her. If she has no one and she's godly, deploy her here. And then we will see what happens. If she's not godly, deploy her nowhere and disciple her because we don't want ungodliness in the church or in the home spreading around, right? Okay, watch this. Now look what he says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So look what Paul's doing. He's setting it up and not just about widows again, but about how we do family. He's saying this, uh, the church is a family and we have a family at home. So he's dancing the dynamic between the two. The family at home is part of the church family, but where does the church family's responsibility take over from the other family when they can't? If you have a widow who has no one, is the church responsible to be her family? And is she responsible to be a godly leader within the church? 
like she would have been in her home if she had a home. Yes, but if she has a family, then where is she supposed to be a godly leader? In her family. And what's the family supposed to do? Be her family and take care of her. So here's what he's saying. If you're a self-indulgent person, period, widow, whatever, that's no good to anyone. And families, if your big idea in this cultural context is now that we've said the church should become family to widows, you're like, sweet. If somebody becomes a widow, I'll just relegate them to the church. They can be their family. In the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was a, was a crazy empire, as you well know. The Greek Empire was. They did many terrible things. But one thing that they did do in this time is they took care of their families. So here's what Paul's saying. If you church people relegate those who are vulnerable that are part of your family to the church because they can take on the burden of taking care of them, you're worse than the unbelievers because they at least take care of their families. Can you imagine if the unbelievers watch the church and they're like, we care about our families. The church relegates their family members to the community and burdens the community with what they should take on. How terrible would that be? So do you see how the conversation's unfolding? This is not about instructions of specific who does what. It's Paul having a conversation that's logical about widows and not just about widows, about all of us in a conversation about godliness in the church, in leadership, and in everyone. Because where there is godliness, there is life. And where there is self-indulgence, there is death. And he just happens to be using the context of widow because it is a primary family dynamic in this space. And he's talking about family unit at home, family at church. Let a widow be enrolled. There's that kind of like, she's now going to become a part of the widows. The church takes care of. Let her be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now, there's a perfect example of us like, okay, we'll do widow care for you. But if you're 59, you're out. (laughs) Is that what Paul's doing here? We know the conversation. We know the context. If you were 60 in this space, Paul's throwing a number on the table that generally it would be like us saying this. Look, if there's a widow that's 95, I mean, do you have to think about taking care of her? No, you shouldn't have to. Don't even just just put that in a category all by its lonesome self. If she's over 60 in this culture, just employ her. If she's godly, disciple her if she's not, right? But if she's under 60, then all the other rules come into play in terms of be logical. Look, does she have others? Does she have a family? Well, do all of that. Now, if she's, if, she's, if she's 60, deploy her. Now look at this. Having been, I love this, the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. What does that sound like? Sounds like the list that he used for leaders in the church just a chapter ago. Look what Paul's doing. He's coming to how many of us? All of us. And he's saying, if you're part of the body of Christ, part of being a disciple of Jesus, what should you be striving to be? Godly. And what does godliness look like in its external expression when it is born out of a devotion for Jesus? Well, it looks like things like you raise your kids with all of your heart. You, you, you care for people. You're kind. You, all the list that's elder and deacon. He just stuck this list on widows. Does he want widows to be in the church and just doing nothing and just being taken care of? No, he wants widows to leave 
in the church. And leaders should be godly. Otherwise, the church is going to be in a mess like Ephesus is in. So look what he just did. If you have widows that are over 60 and they've lived a godly life, what should you do with them immediately? Enroll them immediately. Get them in. They are the greatest asset in the world. A godly leader who has no one to have to serve outside the church, have them serve here. I'm just going to throw this side note real quick because scripture is dealing with categories a lot of the time, not just with individuals. Right now, widows is the specific context. But in our culture, who is it in our culture that oftentimes gets unemployed from the burden of providing for a workplace because they've collected enough to do, wait for it, retirement. And then when they get unemployed into retirement, their big plan is do as little as possible. Now, I know many of you here who have retired, you're like, little as possible? Are you kidding me? Those grandkids are killing me. Those children are killing me. I've got to run around like I've never run around before. Good for you. Good for you. You're following these instructions super well. Deploy first where? In the home. And then whatever time you have left, deploy where? Right here. So if you get to the place where you have someone like a widow who's 60 and doesn't have anything that she's responsible for and she's godly, where should you immediately put her? To work in the church. Not like, like a staff person, like, a, like come and serve. Maybe a staff person, maybe not. The point is come here. We do a poor job, I will give you that, both as a church and a culture, of taking those who have more time, resource, and energy available to them and some wisdom if they've been godly and deploying them well in the church context. We have to learn, you have to learn. But what he's saying is when you have someone godly who's older and wiser and godly, and she, in this case, doesn't have a lot to do, get them in quickly. Now look what, look what he says here. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan. Wow! That just sounds like a big giant reprimand, but let's just, be, let's just be honest for a second. Welcome to the human race. Ready? Ready, everybody? Humans in the room? You ready? When we have nothing to do and we have everything provided for us, we got a big nest egg and we don't really have to do anything. What? That's exactly it. Our propensity is to gravitate towards serving deeply the world. No, we become idle. And as soon as we're idle, we start walking around in our context. We jump on social media, have lots to stay, hang out with our friends. This is Ephesus that we're talking about. Ephesus was a Roman and, and Greek hub. And these people were already, many of them, in a wealthy city with wealth. So a lot of these younger widows, they had even from their families wealth. So they'd marry a husband. Maybe there's wealth in the family. The husband passes. They now have the wealth. And now they're going to come to the church. The church is going to take care of them, meet all of their needs, and use them to do what? Nothing. So then what are they going to do? 
They're going to walk around with each other. They're going to talk about how lonely they are and how they wish they had husbands, but they can't have husbands because the church forbids marriage now that they're a widow because they've been employed as widows because the leaders of the church know that these wealthy widows are advantageous to their church so they can get their money and their time. And they walk around, become idle, gossip, and end up doing things they ought not to. Who else does that? All of us. All of us do that. So what Paul is saying is, for younger widows, don't deploy them into the church without the wisdom that older widows have just to walk around and have nothing to do and get themselves in trouble. Get them back in the home and then do what? Have those parents work like they did the first time to get them what? Married again. And when they get married, first they were responsible in the home for their parents, just like the children were, and then responsible for their household. When you're raising your kids, managing your household, doing your thing, you don't have time to run around and be idle and gossip. And I mean, we still figure some ways out to do that. But most of the time, when we are busy doing what God has called us to do, then we are actually more godly. Now, watch this. Here it is. What is our calling for each other? What is love? The aim of our charge is love. What is the charge? The charge is toward godliness. Should I be desiring godliness for you? Should you be desiring it for me? Should I be rebuking, correcting, course correcting, whatever else, in a gentle and kind way as though you were my sibling or parent or child to make you more godly? Yes, because that's life. And what he's saying here is, Church, behave toward the widows in their best interest, not in yours. Behave toward them in their best interest, not in yours. And families, behave toward the widow in their best interest, not yours, and in the best interest of the church. So first, widows, get them back in the home, get them married again if they're younger. If they're older, get them with their kids and their grandkids. If they don't have any of those and they're godly, get them in the church. And then, Widows, be leaders for any of those contexts. And any of those contexts, be family to the widow. And if it's the church, then we better be a family to the church. Look what he says next. And we close with this. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So Paul ends this seemingly about widows, and yes, partly about widows, but actually about all of us. This is what he says. Do you realize that when a group of people who do not need the church to meet all their needs are in the church to have all their needs met, they actually rob the church of the ability and calling God gave the church to meet the needs of the people who actually have needs? Did you hear him say that? He was just using the widow context here. If widows who don't need the church and have family that can engage with them burden the church, then the widows who need the church don't get the church because the church is burdened by all of those who don't need the church. Mm, That's how we should care about widows. Are you buckled up? I'm just giving you a heads up because when I'm about to say something hard, I just give you a heads up. Just buckle on up because your little soul is going to get all bent out of shape for a second here. You're going to get super defensive you're going to be like, oh, I can't believe he said that. And I can't believe I'm saying it either, but I'm going to say it anyway. So our context is a little different, right? What Paul is doing here, and this is the beauty of a conversation, is it's about widows, but it's about much more. Here's what he's saying. Hey, folks who follow Jesus, 
if you're in the church looking for the church to meet all of your needs and preferences when you're perfectly capable of meeting them yourselves or they're just your preferences, not your needs, then you become a person who keeps the church from being able to meet the needs of people who actually have need. And you become a church that is not godly and not following the call of Jesus. And we are a culture that does that a lot. I'm not saying you do that. We didn't get to this passage and be like, yay, we can bring a message quickly about serving and tithe because we need to get everybody to give more of their time. You guys, plenty of you are plenty generous with your time and plenty generous with your resources. And a bunch of you are not because we have been taught from the time we were raised in this country that everything exists for us. And we can be whatever we want and do whatever we want. And everyone should bend to our desires and will because we are individuals who matter and we do matter. Don't get me wrong. But we roll into church and what we do is we watch what the church can provide. We choose churches by what they can provide for us and for our families, not needs as much as preferences. We want all the things to be the best that they can be. And when they're not, we complain. This isn't as good as it should be. I, I, was, I didn't have that. But then we don't serve, we don't give, and we don't participate. And what Paul just said is whether it's a widow, a leader, or anybody else, if you are in the church self-indulgent here to get what you think you need and what your preferences are, but you are not participating with generosity of your talents, gifts, time, energy, and resources, then you are robbing the collective, the body of Christ from meeting the needs of people who actually have them. But when we, the church, change our mindset, like the widow he describes in here who's godly and says, deploy me now so that I can be a godly presence in my home or in the church, then when our mindset is, what can I bring to the table for the church collectively, so we collectively can make a bigger difference. When we deploy our time, energy, and resources, that which we have available in accordance with our first calling, which is home, that's clear in the passage, then we allow the collective to meet a great deal more needs. One of the reasons why Mosaic can be as missional as we are and move, you heard it this last year, literally over a million dollars into meeting actual needs in our local and global community of people that can't is because there is a portion of us who are not here to take, but here to give. And when we do, godly and amazing things happen. And when we don't, we steal. So it is important for us, if we follow Jesus, to evaluate two things. One, am I really more here to make sure all my preferences are met and when they're not, I get bent out of shape, but I give as little as possible because I'm preserving self, I'm self-indulgent. Or am I here to participate, to bring glory to God and expand the church by giving that which I have? That's the first question we need to evaluate. And the second one is this, when I have need, real need, Am I so American and so prideful that that feels like weakness so I won't ask? See, both are true. We're a people that don't want to ask when we have real need, and we're a people that want everything according to our preferences when we don't actually need. What a strange thing. But it's not strange, is it? Because it sounds just like the tricky enemy, doesn't it? If you're here and you have need, what should you do? Lean on the body. And if you're here and you have preferences, what should you do? Lay them on down. Lay them on down. 
walk right on over them and serve Jesus and his church so that his church can expand the kingdom of God and serve those who really need it. Preferences, what do you do with them? Lay them on down. Needs, what do you do with them? Voice them, engage with them, and let the church step in and be wise and help you meet them. This is how it should be. And when we do that, beautiful things happen. Joel, uh, one of our pastors here who teaches in regularity here as well, uh, he lost his dad when he was young. So his mom was widowed. Um, And Joel, I've talked with him over the years, many, many times about how the church took care of his mom and his family. And they did it incredibly well. They were part of a great church that just did everything you can imagine in this. They deployed her into serving the church. It was all the stuff. It was beautiful to watch. And Joel, to this day, all the things he's walked through in the messiness of church life, what measures all that is this. Yeah, but when the church does what the church does, it's beautiful. When we do what this is inviting us to do with widows or anybody else, the world and us look in at this place and we see what it's like when God is working through his body and his people. And when we don't, we create damage and hurt and we show the world they should stay as far away from us as possible. And let us be a church that expands our generosity by the attitude of saying, what can I bring? Not what can I get? Not because we want to be selfless, but because when we do, Life is the fruit, not death. A passage about widows that wasn't about widows at all. There was just a conversation about the church being a family and how we should deal with each other, including widows. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for really doing exactly what you had Paul call Timothy to do, to come and encourage us and rebuke us to stir us up and correct us and yet uh, give us a great sense of what we get to be part of. God, you're so gracious in this beautiful unfolding conversation that Paul is having with Timothy to show us how to be family. Because you've said in this letter, God, already that when we engage in behaving toward each other, as servants to each other, as family members, laying our preferences down for the sake of each other, whether as leaders in any capacity, overseeing or serving, that what has resulted from that is your fruit, life and light and freedom, and a world that looks in and longs to be part of something this beautiful. God, we want to be the kinds of families that demonstrate in our messiness uh, a constant desire to grow toward greater godliness and a church that does the same. We want to be families that take care of our own and we want to be our own who take care of our families and we want to be a church that takes care of our own and our own taking care of the church because God, we are one big giant family made up of lots and lots of little families. And I pray that you would teach us well to defy this culture and value that which you value over that which they value. Help us to know how to best care for each other. Fathers and mothers to children, children to fathers and mothers, spouses to each other, brothers and sisters, not just in our homes, but right here in this place. 
Show us the way so that we can bring you glory and expand your kingdom on this planet, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.